The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Hello, welcome to Provoke Podcast. I am Diana Marzalek. I am the senior reporter with Provoke Media, and I have two guests with me here today. I have Steve Kirsch, who is founder of the COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund. And I also have Amber Albrecht from Allison and Partners who works with Steve and the organization on their communications. So welcome to both of you. Thank you, it's great to be here. Steve, can you tell us a little bit about your organization? Uh, Sure, Um, when uh, COVID uh, uh, came about, I basically uh, sequestered in my house because I have uh, multiple uh, conditions that would exacerbate what would happen if I I got the virus. Uh, And then I started talking to medical researchers uh, that I had been, uh, 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 that I'd funded over the past 20 years. And they all said, hey, um, excuse me, that uh, drug repurposing uh, is going to be the fastest and least expensive way to uh, address this virus and that there are lots of scientists uh, that are around that just aren't getting funding to be able to do these outpatient trials to, um, uh, to solve this problem. So I basically put my, my business on hold, um, delegated most of it to, to my existing management team, and uh, just started uh, focusing on, on this, this drug repurposing and funding uh, scientists uh, because it seemed to be a... a um, a need that wasn't being met. So you have a fundraising effort, correct? You're working in, in fundraising? Well, we're, we're doing a combination of things. Uh, one is I put together a 12-person scientific advisory board from top specialists from all over the country, and they're specialists in, in each of the various aspects of the coronavirus. So we have our, our one of the world's top 20 uh, coronavirus experts on the panel, but we also have people who are experts in, in the research phase and translational uh, research uh, in um, uh, lung diseases and, and, and so forth. And so uh, we put together a very uh, senior team of, of scientists and they uh, review uh, grant applications. So it's part fundraising to raise the money, but it's also to open it up so that scientists who have promising studies can apply uh, to the organization and get funding. Excellent. So it's a wonderful effort. I'm, I'm wondering though, why these um, scientists, why these, these, these studies were not being funded or not getting treatment. Is it the, um, the uh, physicians or, or the medical personnel having a hard time kind of breaking through to organizations? Well, I think it's, um, we're not really set up for a pandemic is the problem. And so NIH processes and so forth for funding are, are not set up for, oh my gosh, you know, we have this uh, pandemic and we're getting hundreds of people who want to get money. Um, but in this case, it's very difficult um, to do clinical, outpatient clinical trials uh, in, a, in a, a situation where there's a pandemic and nobody's you know, people are locked out of the hospitals or, you know, the hospitals are kind of in lockdown. And so this is a pretty unusual situation. And people had been focused much more on vaccines 
and funding vaccines and monoclonal antibodies and also drugs that can be used in a hospitalized setting to save patients' lives. And so there's not much effort that was being put at actually preventing hospitalization because the hospitals were being jammed with patients. And so, you know, logically, you should think about about how to prevent that from happening. But practically speaking, what you do is you say, oh my gosh, my hospitals are overwhelmed. What do I do about the hospitalized patients? And so that's your first priority because they're already in the hospital. What do you do about them? So that is where the focus had been. And it's kind of like, oh my gosh, you know, you, it's hard to juggle several things at the same time. And um, so this is why uh, people um, uh, basically have, have not been looking at the prevention aspect of it. It's almost uh, very analogous to global warming where, you know, we know that we should be reducing our CO2 emissions. <clears throat> but what we do instead is we focus on, oh, well, here's um, $5 billion for the forest fire that uh, just happened. And so you spend your time on mitigation effects that way rather than spending your, the billions of dollars that you should have uh, spent on prevention. So what we're seeing with COVID is really exactly the same way we treat global warming, which is we're addressing the symptoms rather than addressing the root cause of it. And so I basically set out to say, look, you know, a, a few million dollars, you know, and we're talking, you know, less than $20 million can fund the clinical trials, the outpatient clinical trials, where the drug is given as early as possible after they have symptoms. And uh, that's a relatively small amount of money, you know, compared to the trillions of dollars we are spending on the economic aid. Um, the fact that we're not spending $20 million to fund the key clinical trials is absolutely astonishing and appalling. Um, and in fact, when I first started this, I surveyed uh, that there are 20 top uh, coronavirus experts in the world. I was able to, to talk to eight of them. And I asked them what, the, the, what drug they would take if they were infected with COVID today. And uh, their answers, uh, the top two drugs that they said was, uh, were remdesivir, um, and, uh, and that's being uh, repurposed now uh, to be in inhaled form so it could be given to people early on. And the second drug was Camistat. And what I found was that there was nobody in the world that was funding these Camistat outpatient trials. And so I knew immediately that what I was doing was extraordinarily valuable because uh, it's... Oh, you know, it's no, no, please go on. Yeah, I mean, it's just an obvious thing. Drug repurposing is absolutely the, the fastest and the, and the most cost-efficient way to end the pandemic. And we weren't even doing the very first obvious thing to address that. And so I saw, man, this is a huge, huge problem. So I spent a million dollars of my own money. I got the, the first Camastap trial in the world 
uh, outpatient uh, study uh, funded and, and started. And then uh, we, we did the same thing uh, in the U.S. And, and started the first chemistat trial in the U.S. and opened that up uh, at Yale. And so we're doing, um, so here I'm a Silicon Valley entrepreneur uh, by day, and, and yet I'm, I'm like leading the charge here on the drug repurposing and, um, and funding, uh, funding these trials. And, and, you know, sadly, it was very, very difficult to raise funds for this. Well, that was my coming question, because I I see um, numerous challenges, and it's wonderful what you're doing. But as you said, people's tendency is to, you know, raise money to, to fix the problems at hand that already exist, right? So you've got to get your message out there and have people understand it. Um, I can see the repurposing of drugs being an issue to cut through because there's been so much talk and noise about using whatever it is, drugs and injecting yourself and all of that. So I imagine there's a lot of fear and unknowns in the process you have to break through too. And then there's just so much coronavirus news and noise and information and different groups doing things. So I'm wondering how you and Amber, please chime in on on how you set about communicating your message so that you could garner the support you need to, to move this forward. I can chime in to give Steve a minute. Um, So as far as kind of breaking through the message here, it's very true. A lot of what you said is true. Um, And we also saw there's just this heavy focus on the vaccine solution. So as we went out and started to, to tell our message, it was, you know, how do we really break through this belief that the vaccine is the only way to recovery? Um, which had really dominated and continues to dominate in a big way the media agenda. Um, So that was something that was really critical to our brand awareness campaign and how we looked at, okay, this is a new organization that is doing something that's different and urgent, and they need to, to raise funds to potentially save lives. So we had a really great core, like there was, there's a good reason why CETF exists, but how do we how do we break through? And that was a big part of looking at how we message this organization and talk about you know that call to action. You can do something. There's so much out there that you need to stay home. You know, 14 days quarantine. But what I love about what Steve says and what the organization is doing is you can you can do something. If you receive that positive test or you have signs of COVID, like you you can do more than stay inside and sit in the couch. There's some actionable components that we really try to key into for people who I, I know for me personally, like every my life has changed, everyone's life has changed. So this organization can really create an opportunity if I have a positive COVID diagnosis, there there could be an option for me to get enrolled in a trial right away to really, you know, help my own life and many others. But if I don't have the diagnosis, I can make even a small donation and possibly make a difference in fighting this pandemic. So those were some critical components to how we, we looked at breaking through with this organization. And were you targeting, is this organization and its messaging targeting the whole gamut of, of people, whether it's patients um, to big funders or the medical community? Um, because these are all very different audiences. They are very different audiences. And I I think what we saw with our early outreach was there were three kind of typical media responses. Silence, um, kind of off to the black hole. And then there was skepticism around any solution that wasn't a vaccine, um, which, and then the general fact that 
the, there was this funding problem. Um, you know, you're, you're going out to hopefully get funding to support critical research of potentially life-saving early treatment. But since the research hasn't been done and, and you know, the media's questioning, well, well, show me the work, show me how this works. And, you know, we had some early things we could speak to, but it was getting past the point of, you know, how do we credential the work the organization was doing? And then the third reaction was um, localism. Coronavirus is a global issue and the media is really hungry for a more local connection. So those were kind of three of the, the challenges we saw right away and to overcome, um, you know, Diana, as you just spoke, we had two spokespeople, um, Steve, and a, a scientist, Lisa Danzig, who could really offer different perspectives on what the organization was doing. So we could really target in on, on media who could reach donors, but also the scientific community to help, you know, build even more credibility for what the organization was doing. Steve, it's interesting that you're, you're doing this. Did, did the medical community need an outsider to come in and communicate their message and organize the way you were doing it? Apparently, yes. And that was the surprising thing that I had expected that other existing organizations uh, would come in and lead the, the charge on this. And I was um, uh, surprised that that clearly wasn't happening. And in fact, what's even worse is that when I went out to these other organizations and said, hey, you know, I'm funding this chemistat trial, we want to uh, expand it into other areas. It's going to cost $2 million and I need your help. Okay. And we're talking the number one drug here that coronavirus experts would take. Hmm. I got no response. Really? Yes. No, from nobody. Oh, oh, sorry. Sorry. The prostate cancer foundation they has, has contributed money. Uh, I, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars from the prostate cancer foundation, a cancer foundation. So, so yeah. So what we're doing is, you know, clearly validated um, by Michael Milken. Um, but the other organizations that we reached out to basically, you know, did not respond. And, and, and so it's, it's a real failure uh, of the system. And Camistat is basically the canary in the coal mine here. That if these guys aren't responding on Camistat, then where, how do you think they're responding on, on other uh, drugs? And so, you know, and the, but there are efforts uh, involved in, uh, by drug companies to pursue the drugs that they um, have the proprietary rights to. But when you're talking about Camistat, which is pretty much a generic drug that no sort of drug company, no single drug company has a vested interest in, there's no funding. And, and what, was, what was very surprising is that these organizations that you thought um, would be logical funders of this were basically silent and, and were, were contributing no money at all, which basically just keeps us into lockdown for longer. And it was the, the non-response of, of the traditional organizations to this that, you know, makes absolutely no sense. And I wish I knew the reason for that, 
That was my question. Even, is what you attribute this to? I mean, is it yeah. not understanding? Is there too much information? Is there well, you know, there it, it, it it's really hard because Camastat is at the top of of you know when I've talked to other experts, not just the coronavirus experts, it's at the top of their list too. So anybody who's fairly knowledgeable in space knows that. Um, the mechanism of replication for this virus, and they they know that inhibiting Tempras two, which is what Camastat does, um, is a very straightforward, very obvious way to uh, prevent the virus from replicating. And so you don't have to be a Einstein to figure that one out. So um, as I said, I, I I'm I was pretty pretty shocked that the Prostate Cancer Foundation was the only other uh, uh, foundation to fund this work. And, uh, you know, so it says, it told me that what I was doing was extremely valuable. And, yeah. and that's just, just one example, right? We have many more examples of this. And is it that these organizations or whomever it is that you're looking for funding, is it that they are, I mean, are they being inundated? Or do you see, and Amber, please chime in again, is there a problem, is this part of the bigger messaging problem with COVID? There's so much out there, there's so much misinformation out there, people don't know what to do, even at this stage, um, how to participate, how to protect themselves, if they should protect themselves. I mean, is this part of just like a, a communications overload? Um, or is, do you see it something more specific than that? You know, speaking from the media side and the conversations that our teams had, it certainly does seem like there's a communications overload, as, as you put it. And I think there's also a really high level of focus on the vaccine. And it's really been a challenge to get the right breakthrough about, no, the vaccine is only one part of you know the COVID story and how we emerge from this pandemic. So that's been a big challenge because their reporting has very much been focused on you know, the, the latest on the vaccine, you have a huge focus from Washington on, you know, making this happen and really setting that media agenda. So it's certainly something that we've seen in our conversations is, well, if is having to educate that that is just one part of this, you have, and Steve definitely can speak more to this. Not everyone's going to get a vaccine. You have supply issues with the vaccine. Um, you can't overlook the need for treatment, even if that is some, if, even if a vaccine was here today. Um, you know, there's a lot of assumptions being made, and that and that being kind of the silver bullet and getting us getting the economy back. So it's been a lot of education. Steve, is this different experience than you mentioned that you've worked with other scientific communities and in, in funding them? And is this in terms of people getting buy-in? Or how or support is this a different experience for you? Well, the the, uh, the things I've been involved in in the past are um, you know things like diabetes and uh, uh, cancer and so forth, and so there's it's it, there's more of an established uh, mechanism for uh, that funding. Uh, so yeah, this this uh, so this was different in that it, this was sort of the you know it's a novel coronavirus. Well, it's also you know, novel funding then for how you approach it. And one could take the view that drug repurposing will, will be ineffective uh, against the virus because drug repurposing typically works much better on things that are not a virus. Um, and so it, it, we've had, uh, for example, with HIV, which is a virus, um, AZT uh, was a repurposed drug that treated 
uh, HIV, but it wasn't very effective. And in some, some ways, it was almost as, uh, as bad as the disease itself. Um, and so there isn't, and there's remdesivir that was used for Ebola, but there isn't this stellar track record of drug repurposing working for viruses. So one could say that, oh, well, the reason that people were ignoring drug repurposing is that it, it, there wasn't this great track record against viruses, and so therefore we should move on to other things. But you know, when it only costs $20 million to go and, and test out all the drugs, there's, there's absolutely, you know, even if it's just a 1% chance that drug repurposing works, you absolutely need to, to allocate the funds and you absolutely need to test the uh, dozen or so low-hanging fruit drugs uh, that people believe are the most promising against this disease. Um, it's just something that it's just so, uh, there's just no way you shouldn't uh, do that. It's, it's just like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's micro pennies on the dollar. Uh, to go and make that test. And if it, if it turns out that you find, find, find something, then of course that was the fastest and cheapest way to have stopped the virus. And the thing is that at this point, because of the research that we've done, we absolutely know that drug repurposing works. It, it makes a enormous difference in terms of the hospitalization and fatality rates. Um, so re in the case of COVID, repurposing drugs absolutely works. And so we now know that it was a huge mistake not to fund this. And we're still making the same mistake because nobody's throwing money at us. Well, I was going to ask, so where are you at in both? I, I know you did get coverage, correct, Amber? I mean, you, you have mm -hmm. broken through the clutter. Um, I'm wondering who you reached, where you're at, what, what are the successes you've seen? What are the you know, what are the audiences you've been able to tap into? From a, a media campaign, we actually saw, and this is a huge credit to Steve, what we decided to do, I told you there were, there were kind of three main reactions, was in particular with Steve being based in the San Francisco area, was we targeted high impact big outlets that we could possibly get a, a wider reach for, um, you know, getting to that point about localizing and, and really, um, you know, trying to, get out there with this COVID early treatment um, messaging. So in that interview, once people could really hear Steve articulate the need for this, he was able to move action, which this is unheard of. This has never happened in my career. He did one syndicated radio on KCBS and before the segment was over, a significant donation came in to the uh, treatearly.org webpage, just a blind donation because they heard what Steve had to say on the radio. So that really created some, some buzz and excitement and helped us break through um, and see some you know, consistent media coverage. And the other opportunities is the business side of it. Um, you know, the Bloomberg radios and the Yahoo Finance, they really understood the economic impacts that, as Steve said, a small amount of money, that initial upfront $20 million to fund this research could have on the bigger picture. So we were able to, to break through by looking at, you know, taking the feedback, let's localize, figure out what's the highest impact, and um, also looking at, okay, what are, what is breaking through? What is resonating? Okay, everyone's talking about the economy. How do we tie this in, in, in their terms? So those were some of the things we did from a media standpoint to help 
create, you know, some interest in the publication. But you know, I'm sorry, in the uh, in the fundraising effort. But it doesn't stop. So what we're we're seeing now is how do we keep the interest in COVID early treatment fund going? As you know, you know, coronavirus. We're now in the election cycle. So so what do you do to keep things going? And that's where we've really been looking at this kind of quick response strategy of who's still covering vaccines, who's keeping updated on these trials, and how do we keep pushing um, COVID early treatment, repurposing drugs as another option that they need to be interested in. So kind of that, that constant feeding, which huge credit to the team who is always looking at the media landscape and I think probably peppering every reporter in, US, in the US who's covering this with the COVID message and it's working. Um, we just, we're, we're seeing more interest in from you know, the business community with Reuters, but also, you know, Medscape and, and leveraging um, the scientific advisory board, which Steve spoke to, to really explain and credentialize this organization and what they're doing, because some of the early feedback is, you know, everybody wants to solve this. And, you know, what makes this organization unique? How do I know that this is really credible work? Um, so once we were able to at least get in the door and start the conversation, that's when we started to see interest in the media and, and coverage. Steve, are you hopeful that, um, you know, where are we in terms of these, these studies being funded? Um, is it on the horizon? Well, uh, we've raised a total of $3.5 million so far. And a single study of a single drug costs around $2 million. So we're a long way from being where we should be because COVID is not a guess it right and fund um, uh, one drug. It is, look, we really don't know which one is going to be the most effective drug. We should go in and fund the top 12. And, um, and hopefully one of those um, will be extremely effective. And, and as, as I said, we, we have found a, a drug which is, has dramatic reduction. So, so we know it works but we don't know that it's the best drug for it um, because there may be other drugs that have fewer side effects uh, and that um, prevent more um, repercussions uh, from the disease. And we, we, we really need the funds. We're, you know, $3 million on a, on a $20 million budget is, is, and we're six months into this pandemic. Um, and so, you know, we have had some successes, but we, we, uh, uh, it, you know, it's all about um, reaching out to uh, to people who can help us. And so if one of your listeners uh, today, you know, may not have be able to write a million dollar check or a $10 million check, but they may know somebody, they may have a connection to somebody who does. And those are the people that if we can reach them, uh, can make all the difference uh, in the world. And so even if you can't um, you, you don't have COVID, you can't enroll in a clinical trial to help us out, even if you don't have the money to donate personally yourself. If you know someone who has the capacity and can bring our story to their attention, um, that's huge. Because just trying to get the attention of, of these big foundations has been absolutely impossible. Right. I mean, Michael Bloomberg, I'm sure, would be very interested 
in what we have to do. But trying to reach Michael Bloomberg's foundation has been um, extremely difficult. And so, um, you know, so that indirect connection that, um, hey, if you, if you could do one thing for us and just can help us by connecting us or, or raising the visibility for someone who has the capacity to make a major donation, that would be game-changing uh, for the world. Well, that is a, a, a big message to end on. So um, I appreciate your cause and what you're doing with it and for speaking with us and um, wish you great luck moving forward and uh, getting these trials underway. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you, Amber. Thanks, Diana. I'm Diana Marzalek. I am a senior reporter with Provoke Media. I have with me today the CMO of Tagger, social media platform, um, but I'm going to let him introduce himself because I don't want to butcher your name. So you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name is Giorgio Filippelli. I'm the CMO of Tagger Media. We are influencer marketing SaaS platform. You know, uh, we are based in LA, but we have offices like New York, UK, and all over the place. <laughs> all over the place, and it doesn't matter now, right? Right? Yes, it's <laughs> all true. over the place. All good. It's all good. Um, you know, I've, I've been kind of pursuing this topic for a while, so I'm, I'm happy to finally have the conversation about it because it hasn't gelled, and I'm um, feeling like influencer marketing. Of course, it was all the talk, all the buzz, everything. It, it must have changed massively over the last six months, um, and I'm trying to curious to find out where where we're at and where it fits in and how it's morphed. So it's, it's interesting to see this. We have been pulling a lot of data to understand like not only the social consumption, you know, that after COVID had like spiked like crazy, but also like how are influencers behaving and like producing content around those subjects. And when I'm talking about the subject, I'm talking about COVID, about like Black Lives Matter, you know, everything that's like in the news right now. Uh, around COVID, we saw there was like, right when the pandemic really like became like broadly and people started being locked down, there was like a basically a freeze on every, every market span. And this including transfer marketing. If you see like early March, you know, everything is slowed down, you know, and then marketers, they start seeing like, okay, where can we reallocate our budget quick so we don't lose our momentum, right? That's when we saw in the influencer marketing get a spike on all like sponsored posts you know, brand partnerships and everything, you know, this changed right now, but like you see April, May, we had like a huge spike on all branded content uh, across many categories, you know, like some categories that really like, really like shine in this research that we did is like cannabis around like mid April, beginning of May, there was a spike in sponsored content. Uh, a lot of other stuff was like travel. There was like a slowdown on anything sponsored because there was no, nothing happening around travel. You know, uh, family, food, drinks, they all like get like a little wave of spikes around the same time. But how did the quality of the, the content or the content itself change? Because I think of influencers as, um, you know, they're going on a trip or <laughs> they're happy or they have the kids or they're talking, talking to particular markets. COVID, I mean, did not allow for that. I, I mean, you could have, they could have really blown it. Right. So yes. how did that work in terms of what they were producing? And, and There was a, a learning curve. 
for sure. Uh, you see, like in the beginning, no one knew how to really like behave. You know, even marketers were like trying to find like the best messaging that you're going to put out there for influencers, because like it's different. Like influencers are different than advertising than regular advertising. Influencers they have a direct connection with their audiences. You know, if you follow influencer A, B, and C, you follow them because you enjoy their content. So like you're going to like pay more attention what they have to say. So there was like this uh, period that people really learning about, okay, what's the right messaging right now that's not going to affect anyone, you know, and it's going to like create a positive impact on my brand or my like product, you know, drive sales or drive awareness. So there was like a, a moment of consciousness that people started like thinking about what's the right messaging, you know, and this really reflect across like real influencers. They're really like using influencer marketing as like a living. You know, uh, they're not like, if you go to travel, travel stopped. You know, travel, like the travel influencers, they, they got hit. Is it still uh, stopped? Is it still stopped, travel? Yes. Uh, we are starting to see like a small trend going up right now. I just put like a report like last week. There is a small trend because it's interesting. We are evaluating content and there were a lot of repost content from like influencers that like, they're not being able to travel. So they're reposting like, hey, like, Throwback Thursday, you know, or like I went to this amazing paradise play, place and I want to go back. Right. You know, uh, so there were a lot of this, but more on the organic front, more of them just like to keep relevant to their audiences because they also cannot stop publishing content. So they don't lose the, the connection they have with their audiences, you know, but in other, in other like categories, like you see like fitness, you know, you see a spike on like how people are like, bring fitness to your new lifestyle, you know? And like, so you see fitness influencers, they, instead of just going, giving regular gym workouts, you know, they're doing more like in-house programs, you know, what can you do at home? What can you do your new lifestyle? So there was like a shift, you know, um, like um, the direction that they take in their content. And this goes like across many categories. And was the shift towards speaking to people to where they were at, at home in a pandemic, correct? Correct. Correct. And was that, you know, that, that was their own personal or were they still sort of um, at that point, were they kind of plugging their own brands? They were doing this to keep the connection or were they still getting being sponsored or promoting? Brands? There was a dip. Uh, we see a lot of it organic, you know, like on their own, like to keep their audience engaged. That was the beginning of the pandemic. You know, uh, if you see like there's like a period of like about like a month or two after the pandemic, they were literally trying to like keep themselves relevant after that you start seeing like a pick uh pick up again on the sponsor posts where like brands or really hire influencer again because if you were a cpg brand or like a consumer product brand that you depends on sales you know and then your regular channels are being affected by people not going to a mall anymore you know even that e-commerce uh it's huge like it's been overshadowing like like brick and mortar you know they start like activating more and more influencers, they start shifting even more uh, marketing budget to influencer marketing because other alternatives were not possible. So we, we see a spike on like brand partnerships happening uh, around May. You know, May when things start picking up again. And has that been lasting? Uh, it got a huge dip uh, around like end of June, July. Uh, and like our our prediction is like everything is starting picking up again now because of the holiday season. But that's normal, like, if you see, 
August, uh, usually it's like a slow month, you know, for a lot of campaigns, but like, because people are getting ready for the holidays, people are getting ready for like Black Friday, getting ready for Christmas, getting ready for really like the holiday season. So we're starting seeing like a, we're going to start seeing like a pickup again uh, this month, like later October, you know, and then November is, is going to be like a show. You know, influencers are going to be, be driving a lot, a lot of like sales throughout the holidays. Now, how was, how did Black Lives Matter and the um, civil rights movement affect influencers and influencer content? It's really interesting. Uh, we, I did a research on Black Lives Matter. The, on June 1st, like Black Lives Matter, they literally went, they reached around like 500 mi uh, million people on, uh, across their social channels. You know, they, that- they Influencers who, who, who reached 500 million people? The influencers? Uh, Black Lives Matter uh, profile. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So there was a spike. They went through like, just for an idea, like their overall like social, the growth, they had like, 360,000 uh, followers on Instagram. In about like a week, they went from, uh, from 360,000 to 3.5, 2.6 million people following them. And why this matters for the influencer marketing? Because people start talking more about the movement. Influencers <coughs> start talking more about the movement. We saw uh, around 12,000, this is like all in June when the Black Lives Matter movement really uh, got attention from the media. We, just in June, we have more than 12,000 mentions of like the Black Lives Matter uh, profile across influencers. You know, so like you see, it is just US I'm talking about. 12,000 influencers really like focus and like in, spread the messaging around in a conscious way, in a supportive way, you know. Uh, and this helped to amplify the message a lot. You know, if you think about like, okay, you have 3.6 million people following Black Lives Matter. You have extra 12,000 influencers that they have other like millions and millions of followers also talking about your movement. Your reach is going to be massive. It's going to be crazy, you know? And then this helps spread the word. This helps spread the consciousness around this movement. Uh, to have an idea, the Blackout Tuesday uh, hashtag that came out, they got around like 22 million uh, posts. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. That was, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. If you think about like influencers driving conscious, like they're trying, they are using their reach for good. That's a great example. You know? but were they walking a fine line? I mean, they have to be authentic, right? They could take one yeah. wrong step. Like, just like we saw companies doing and, and you know, you're opening yourself up for criticism too. So influencers, did you see most of them were willing to take this step? Did they do it cautiously? Did they, um, you know, what did you see in terms of what they were producing? I, I look a lot of like content about what they produce. For sure, they, what you said, like a lot of them, they try to keep their, their voice, you know? They try to be like authentic to their audience, like what their audience expect from them. You know, if you go to like a, a mega, like a, like a top tier influencer like Kelly Jenner, you know, her post is about like more about like just talking about the, the, the movement, you know, without getting super involved, you know, but if you talk more about like localized influencers, micro influencers, they have like a specific niche, you know, they really want to put out their, uh, their idea, you know, how they see this movement. 
but they're doing it in a conscious way. You know, keeping their voice, keeping like respecting for what their audience like expect from them, but they are still spreading the word. You know, um, they're spreading the word. So when it comes to um, the Black Lives Matter movement and COVID, because we're still in the thick of that, um, what role are they playing in actually providing information to the public? In the beginning, like they were providing way more information. Uh, I would say like Black Lives Matter. June was when everybody was talking about it, you know, and they're really, they're really like helping the movement, you know, but after that, you see a slowdown. Right now, there's not as much engagement around the, the, the subject. You know, this we're talking about like three months in, right? Um, and around the COVID, same thing. COVID, we had like a spike you know, around like April, May, but I'm talking about like massive, massive reach. Uh, and then we see a slowdown. You know, we went from like 500 million overall reach on influencers talking about COVID uh, to right now is around 50 to 60 million uh, people a month talking about COVID, uh, reaching, you know? Right, so, so, so have they kind of retreated to, um, I don't want to say retreated, but, have they retreated to doing what they did before or are they doing what they did before in a different way or where are we at? They are doing what they did before in a different way. You know, they, if you think about like influencers are doing this right, you know, and they are not like pushing people to go out to party, you know, to like, Hey, let's just get this gathering. You know, they're talking about like influencers more about around COVID. Like they're talking about, Hey, there's let's work out at home. Let's get like, let's do social distancing, you know, but they still like spreading the word. They still haven't been partnerships, you know, but you see that there is like a, a shift on the behavior, you know, on most of them. Of course you have cases that like people are using COVID. There was like a, a, a news like a few weeks ago about like an influencer, a YouTube influencer. They did a huge party in Hollywood Hills, you know, and like, why? You know, like that's, and they promote that, you know? And so like they prom this, in this case, they promote like a, the wrong message to their audience, you know? Right. And you see other influencers, they are really like conscious about that. You know, they want to do something right because they know that they can impact uh, their audiences right. in a positive way. So when you get to an influencer, like the one that had the big party and promoted it, I mean, is this someone who relies on brands and is this somebody who will be dropped by brands um, just the way, you know, athletes get dropped or spokespeople get dropped is the same thing with influencers? Oh, for sure. There's no doubt on that. <laughs> you know, these influencers, uh, these influencers that promote like a party, for example, if like a brand, uh, if you go a brand that's super conscious, you know, and want to do the thing right, they're not going to partner with them. You know, uh, one thing that we see a lot uh, on our end, our company, because our tool helps you to like, really match influencers with like brands. Uh, and if you see like this, this guy, like let's say this guy that had the party, he shows up in a, in a partnership for Nike and Nike doesn't want to be part of it. They're going to be able to see like if this is the right influencer for them, what's the message they're trying to spread. So they're for sure not going to partner with them anymore. You know, so like these uh, influencers, if YouTube, like they're going to rely only on like, on ad sales, you know, on their like media sales, not more brand partnerships. It, I imagine it's, it's, um, it's, it's not, I don't wanna say it's a different set of people, but 
when a brand has a partnership with a professional athlete or a celebrity, you know, those people are backed by managers and agents and deals and contracts and all of that. And I guess there's a certain standard of public behavior that they sign up for, but you don't really have that necessarily with influencers, do you? You don't, you don't. You do have managers, uh, like influencers nowadays, they have agencies representing them, you know, from like small, like managers to big, like CAA type of businesses. Uh, you see more and more influencers getting, uh, being managed by, uh, or individuals or corporations. Uh, but it's different than athletes. You know, like they, what we said before, they have to be authentic. To be authentic, they have to keep doing what they're doing that made them what they are, right? So there's like a less, uh, like less control on what you can do with them for sure. Right, right. So where do you see it going? We're going into the fall. Um, it's still COVID. <laughs> it's still Black Lives Matters. Um, I mean, where do you see this going? Are brands still investing heavily in influencers? Um, are they still messaging versus looking at holiday sales? Where are we at? Uh, right now, you're going to see the shift for sales. You know, like more and more, like if you if you think about influencer marketing five years ago, uh, was it more like a top of the funnel, was an awareness player. Let's build a brand. You know, let's promote, spread the word. Right now, it's a little different. You have influencers that are really driving sales. They're driving revenue, direct revenue to companies and to brands. So you're going to see it during the Q4 now, like really sales coming from influencer marketing. You know, marketing uh, marketers use influencers as almost like an e-commerce channel. You know, if you see like a few months ago when uh, Instagram implemented like their shop features, it's way easier to drive, to click that like the last click of like cart direct on Instagram and influencers are helping that, you know, you're going to see like a big shift on regular advertising that we were raising the shift to influencer marketing where like the industry is getting more and more mature. We're getting like a level of maturity now that people are really uh, treating influencer marketing as a paid media activation, you know, more and more like use influencer marketing as like a, a how you use to do media buying, you know, or a search campaign or like a, even Instagram campaign, you know, they're becoming like the new channel for driving direct sales. And so it's kind of gone next level. And oh, yes. does it go anywhere from there? Who knows? You know, it's just changing more and more. You know, uh, if you run like a paid media campaign, you can, you can like see your attribution, you know, you can see how, like with X dollars invested, how much, uh, how much money you made, you know, and now you're going to be able to see those influencers too. You know, and then like, I think more and more, they are going to become, they are becoming a, their own media channel. You know, they are going to go for influencer ABC and use them like as your main promotional channel, you know, to drive sales, to drive like uh, brand growth. You know, it's getting, it's, it's amazing to see this. And like more and more channels, you see like, we have TikTok and we have Triller now, you know, we have like more and more like platforms showing up. You know, and the diversity around that, it's crazy because you have different audiences, different channels, different opportunities for brands and different opportunities for influencers to create authentic and new content for each different channel. Okay, one last question. How do we break into the business? How do we become an influencer? Right now, right now it's hard. Are you an influencer? No. I have, no. Max said, I have like 800 followers on my Instagram and that's it. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> mostly, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so right now, like, of course, like, there's always like, oh, yes, you have to be to have your own voice, 
you know, but when you have millions of influencers with their own voice, you know, so it's about like what you make that is going to make you stand out. Right. You know, it's way harder for you to break in nowadays because you have a lot of people that are doing this right. You know, uh, like, right, you're, not in the, you're not in the first class of influencers anymore. <laughs> exactly. You're not, you're not. New generation. You know, so you have to be really unique, you know, and you have to appeal to a certain niche. Right. You know, we see more and more like the micro influencers having more success because they're focusing on specific niche, you know, they drive way more engagement rates than like a bigger influencer because like people that follow them, they really like what they do. Right. You know, and I think that's how you break in. All right. All right. Well, I appreciate your insights um, and sharing them with us. Awesome. That was great. <laughs> okay. So we'll continue to follow this and we'll talk soon, I hope. Sounds good. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. You've been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.